Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute, dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm your host, Caroline Roberts, and on today's show, we'll first hear from Acton staff Drew McGinnis and Dan Huger on the book Communism and Christian Faith, written by Lester DeCoster at the height of the Cold War and newly reissued in Acton's bookshop, with a new introduction by Pavel Hannes. Pavel is professor in the Department of Theology at Matai Bell University in Slovakia and also joins Drew and Dan on the podcast today. Next, we have a short econ quiz segment featuring questions on trade deficits. What are they and how are they measured? Lastly, on Upstream, Bruce Walker speaks with mystery novelist Sally Wright on her literary contributions. So without further ado, let's jump into the first segment. This is Radio, Act, Radio Free Acton, and uh, this is Drew McGinnis. I am a research fellow and editorial director here at the Acton Institute, and today we are discussing the new uh, edition of Lester DeCoster's book, Communism and Christian Faith. And on the phone with us today, we have Dr. Pavel Hennis. Uh, from Slovakia. He is a professor in the Department of Theology and Catechetics at Matai Bell University in Slovakia. Uh, he has a PhD from the Evangelical Theological Faculty at Komenius University in Bratislava. Uh, Dr. Hennis has written a new introduction to Lester de Koster's uh, book that's uh, just been released, and we're discussing uh, that also with uh, Dan Huger, Acton Institute's librarian and a research associate. Uh, uh, Dan Huger has uh, worked with Lester DeCoster's books and his library that was donated to Acton uh, and the papers also at Acton. And uh, we're pleased to have uh, Pavel and Dan with us today. Um, thank you for joining us, Pavel. Thank you. And uh, Dan, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Drew. Um, so, as I said, we're uh, reissuing here uh, Lester de Coster's book, uh, Communism and Christian Faith. It was originally uh, published uh, in 1956, but then again in 1962, and we're re- reissuing it with a new introduction. And my question really for the two of you, Pavel and Dan, is um, why, uh, why is it worth bringing out this uh, book uh, in a new edition today in 2018? Uh, what do you see, uh, Pavel, as some of the enduring uh, contributions of the book, or why would it be relevant in an American or European context? In my opinion, Marxism is uh, immortal in a bad sense uh, because it uh, deals with the basic or really deep longings of humans for eternity, for happiness and at the same time promises future through um, reorganization of society, not uh, through real change inside. So it's both very deep and both very easy. So, and also there are many Marxisms, as we can say. So that's why I think it's very important to be reminded uh, that we need to be prepared to deal with it again. And uh, I think it's similar probably in the American context, right, Dan, that uh, just there's this ongoing, um, as it were, different types of Marxism or uh, morphing of Marxism, if you will. 
Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's a perennial interest. And part of it is Marxism does give a fully formed sort of analytical apparatus that can be applied to many disciplines. And you still see it in many facets of, of American academia, that uh, this analysis um, continues to be a force in history as a discipline. It's infiltrated theology, um, and liberation theology, obviously, but also other more uh, more recent forms of modern theology. Um, as to when, when the book was initially published, um, it was commissioned by Erdman's as part of a series that would be sort of serious introductions to serious topics for lay people in the Christian church. And they had solicited uh, Lester DeCoster to do this communism volume. Uh, one of the reasons was um, his expertise. This had been something that, um, in addition to sort of Reformation history, was his chief focus. And he was also seen as, at the time, an authentic voice on the left. There was a lot of, in the 50s and the 1960s in Western Michigan, a sort of reflexive unthinking conservatism. And Lester DeCoster was somebody who was active in the Democratic Party in the United States at the time, um, had gener would generated a little bit of a controversy by endorsing John F. Kennedy for president, who was both, you know, a Democrat and a Roman Catholic, which in Grand Rapids at the time was scandalous. Um, but when he looked around at the landscape of that sort of reflexive, uncritical, unthinking conservatism, he saw a lot of anti-communism, but a lot of it wasn't grounded in an actual deep penetrating knowledge of Marxism. And that that knowledge is something that's necessary, that if you're going to combat something in the world, it needs to be grounded in the truth of that thing in the world. And I know, uh, Pavel, in your uh, introduction, you said uh, uh, at one point you had set out to write a Christian critique of communism yourself, and you said you, at the time, you didn't know about DeCoster's book and you wish you had. Um, what are some of the things you think uh, that uh, DeCoster does well? Well, exactly. Uh, even now, I, I admire how he really hit on the really basics. He doesn't come in the book as, uh, well, sorry about this, but almost I would say he doesn't speak like an American who is uh, trying to um, defend American system, but he's a theologian who really uh, uh, hits or attacks the, um, the the core of a Marxist system, which is philosophy, sociology, maybe psychology, and this, well, of course, he also suggests what to read and how to work in America, so I'm not trying to uh, belittle that, but for me, this was very important, and when I tried 20 more, more years uh, ago to work up out something uh, about uh, uh, Marxism that would be helpful in reconstruction, I uh, did not see such a short and very concise book which would be really 
speaking to the uh, real problem of Marxism. So I am really thankful for this. And, for example, one uh, sentence which he, which he says, uh, I felt I came up with this, but then finally I found it in him. Dialectic uh, is uh, trying to apply terms uh, that are applicable only to mental processes. Well, this is what was important for me in my discussion or my uh, um, uh, work, and uh, finally I found it in De Coster. So I'm, uh, in a sense, uh, regretting that I didn't have it before, but I'm happy to have it now. Thank you. Yes, yes. Um, I think there's uh, there's a lot of illuminating aspects of De Coster's book. Um, and one that uh, stuck out to me is his critique of uh, Marxism's utopian ideal. Uh, it, it seems like De Coster again and again comes back to Marxism's dissatisfaction with any imperfections in the social order. Um, and so De Coster has a line at one point, he says, uh, it is we must remember a Marxist trick to judge society as if it could be perfect. Um, and isn't, so isn't this utopian desire of Marxism one of its uh, enduringly attractive features to people, this idea that uh, we're pursuing perfection in the here and now? Well, this is a very appealing uh, part of Marxism, if not the most appealing, because it uh, says you can be perfectly happy uh, through... A, economics or, or, or the state means, which is a great promise, and whenever and whoever doesn't fulfill this promise is um, a subject of Marxist critique. Well, it's easy to criticize, as De Coster says, but uh, only eschatology can provide solution. But Marx promises that just change the system and eschatology will come. Well, only a theologian can really criticize this because philosophers do not have alternative. Any philosopher who doesn't believe in Christian future has only this world to promise, and we have another world. So it's easier or maybe only possibility to criticize this through Jesus Christ, who will um, uh, come and uh, uh, introduce the really new uh, system. But before that, the coaster is very right that we should be realistic. Mm, right. Yeah, Pavel is, is absolutely right there. Um, one of the things, it not only promises perfection, but it removes responsibility. Um, none of this is your fault. This is all something structural in the system itself. And all your problems, all your concerns, all your cares will be eliminated when those things are eliminated for you. Um, there's not a grounding in any sort of personal responsibility. There's a, there's a quote from de Coster that sums this up well from the book. It says, uh, in contrast with the Marxist view of sin and salvation, Christian doctrine is that it is the individual who sins and therefore the individual who upon confession, repentance, and divine forgiveness is saved. Yes. It, uh, so it's really, uh, as you're touching on here, that it's important to note that de Coster is coming at this as a theologian, uh, not yes, as a philosopher. Right. So as a Christian theologian uh, specifically. And one of the questions I had uh, as I was thinking about uh, this book, maybe in the European context, where it's 
perhaps almost entirely unknown <laughs> in a large part of the European context. Um, Pavel, do you think uh, that there's a hearing uh, for a Christian critique like de Coster's in your context uh, or in, in Slovakia or in Europe more broadly? Uh, I think it's coming. You know, this uh, euphoria after the revolution was like uh, we are coming to something really good and uh, problem problemless. But as Fukuyama said, uh, uh, you know, he, he said the, the end of the world, and uh, people see that there is still uh, corruption. We are in the middle of, of a big uh, crisis in this country now. So uh, this uh, disillusionment uh, leads back to a strong and... Uh, I would say, forceful, revolutionary um, uh, political uh, acts or uh, maybe reform. I don't mean reforms, like revolution. You know. And we, I think we really need to be ready to speak. We already had been there. And the revolution happened 2007, I mean, uh, 1917 and 2017, we had 100th uh, anniversary of Bolshevik revolution. And uh, there was only so many deaths and no real progress. So I think this is very necessary, and I'm really happy that it's uh, theological. Because as I say, really thorough, thorough uh, critique of Marxism is possible only from uh, the Christian uh, viewpoint, I mean, Christian theology. And so uh, I think also um, we see parallels like this in the States sometimes, that um, if uh, even secular uh, folks who don't uh, have a Christian um, Christian beliefs or Christian worldview would be open to perhaps some of the critiques of, uh, of Christians uh, in some of these areas, would you say that's about... Yeah, and there's a lot of, um, I mean, there's a lot of criticism to go around, and a lot of it's fair, um, and that's sort of the structure of who we are as as persons, and the structure of of the social order in general. Um, we make mistakes and we make failures. Um, there is, I think, in the United States, an openness um, to to both both the, the Marxist critique that we talked about earlier, particularly in academia. But I think there's, you know, there's, there's also a vibrant religious scene here right. in the United States. And I think there are deep-rooted senses of sort of an American psychology of um, individual agency that I think um, – it's weakened, but it's still very lively. We have a lively tradition of, of religious life. We also have a lively tradition of sort of secular expressions of that and like the self-help books and that sort of thing. Um, there is a notion of the empowered individual who's responsible for his mistakes. And one of the areas I, th I think that's helpful in uh, DeCoster's book uh, is as he's emphasizing the that the Christian must make the positive case um, against Marxism. He also, in there, uh, emphasizes that we have to start with examining ourselves. 
and be well, open. For to... me, it's very important that we should be uh, very accurate about communism. It's easy when we criticize Marxism or communism, but it's easy for people to perceive us as we are defending capitalism or selfishness or um, anything goes or liberalism. And Decoster is very strong about this. We are not on this side or that side. We are on Christ's side. We we uh, need moral reformation, and that moral reformation comes through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, and uh, through Christian um, church, and so on. So this is very refreshing, and that's why I'm so happy to have it in my hands. So De Coster is very positive, but also self-critical against Christians who are attacking communism not accurately. They are not uh, really strictly accurate, but, but uh, they easily succumb to hatred or to some propaganda. And that's very dangerous because then we actually work against ourselves. And Dan, that uh, actually goes to some of the context of why DeCosta wrote the book in the first place, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot in the in, in the United States in the forty in the fifties and the sixties. A lot of people were becoming aware of the threat that communism is. I mean, in the Second World War, we were allied with the Soviet Union, but that awareness of a threat was not an awareness of the thing and its animating spirit and it resulted in a lot of um, conservative social movements that weren't that didn't really result in a constructive case against communism. Uh, so I just wanted to, as we wrap up here, uh, uh, to close with uh, DeCoster uh, himself. He has this, uh, one of his closing statements in the book is a great call to action, I think. And he says, the best anti-communism will come not only out of a determined opposition to all that communism stands for, but it will come even more so out of the best dedication to the goals of freedom, of justice, of equity, of brotherhood, of the Christian life. And so uh, Lester DeCoster's book, Communism and Christian Faith, is available now. Uh, this is a reissue with a new introduction by Pavel Hennis. And uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Hennis, uh, for being with us today. Well, I thank you for giving me this opportunity. I feel really honored. Thank you. Yes, and thank you, Dan. My name is Caroline Roberts, and you are listening to Econ Quiz, the part of Radio Free Acton where we talk with a real-life economist and get his thoughts on a pressing issue in the news today related to economics, and we examine how it might be understood or misunderstood by the public. Today, I'm sitting down with Dave Hebert, who is professor of economics at Aquinas College. Thanks for joining me today, Dave. Hey, thanks for having me. Today's topic is trade deficits. They're a little bit more of a hot topic right now um, due to Trump's recent announcement with steel and aluminum tariffs, which we discussed a couple weeks ago. So first, I want to define what exactly is a trade deficit. Yeah. So a trade deficit is just an, it's an accounting identity. And what it is, is we take the value of all the goods that we export to other countries and we subtract the value of all the goods that we import from other countries. If that number is negative, so if imports are bigger than exports, we call that a trade deficit. 
And if that number is positive, where exports are bigger than imports, we call it a trade surplus. So the word deficit, it sounds a little scary. <laughs> Uh, it, you know, debt yeah. is what it implies. And so is this always a bad thing when we have trade deficit? No. So it's actually, it can be very easily viewed as a great thing. So let's back up and sort of think about what it means to export things and what it means to import things. So when you export something, it's something that you produced on your land and you sent it to some other land that's not yours. And when you import something, you're purchasing something from your land, right, on, on your land that was made in some other place, okay? So let's think about maybe we have two farms, uh, one's on the Michigan border, one's on the Canadian border. They're right next to each other. The Michigan farm grows corn, let's say, and the Canadian farm grows wheat. Well, if the Michigan farm wants to get some of the Canadian farm's wheat, they have to give up some corn, right? And we would call that corn an export because it's value that we produce that we sold to a foreigner. But we can also look at it as a cost. That corn is the cost of getting the wheat. In other words, the corn is what we give up in order to acquire the wheat. So in this sense, we can view exports as the cost of imports. Imports in this framework would be the benefit. They're the increased consumption that we get to do. And exports are the cost and this national trade accounting gets this exactly backwards. It accounts for exports as a benefit, in other words, it counts positive, and imports as a negative or a cost, or I'm sorry, as a, as a cost of trade. But that's the wrong way to think about it. Imports are the benefits and exports are the costs. So where do we stand with trade deficit now and how exactly is it measured? Yeah, so what we do is we, uh, we've take a valuation of all the goods that come in from different countries and we sort of assign a dollar value to each one of those goods or each one of those crates and we just look at sort of the number of crates going out of the country and the number of crates coming into the country. So with China, we're currently running a trade deficit, uh, which is where President Trump is getting his idea for steel tariffs and everything like that is to try to reduce that number. With Australia, we're running a trade surplus. Uh, with Canada, I think it's a trade deficit right now, but it's been a little bit since I've looked at those figures, so I'm not sure. Uh, with a lot of European countries, we run uh, trade deficits. So right now, the picture is on net, the U.S. runs a trade deficit. But like I said, that's just saying that we're giving up fewer exports than we're getting in return in imports. And that sounds like we're getting lots of things for lower price or lower cost. So to me, that sounds like a great thing. So is the way that we measure it accurate? So I don't think so. Well, this is one of those answers where economists have sort of on the one hand, yes, and on the other hand, no. So in the strictest sense, it is correct how we measure it. So we want to subtract the value of imports from GDP because what we're trying to do with, with GDP figures is compare productivity on the left-hand side of the equation with income on the right-hand side. And those numbers should be equal. But if we count, if we didn't subtract imports, then we would be counting them as consumption, which is a component of GDP, but it wouldn't count towards income in the United States. And so we subtract the value of imports from GDP figures to adjust for that. 
But what happens is when we focus on trying to reduce imports as a means of increasing GDP, which is what President Trump is trying to do, well, what you're really going to see is a reduction in consumption because people aren't buying the imports anymore and a matching decrease in imports. And so the net effect on GDP should be basically zero, which is why reducing imports has never increased GDP in any country. All right. Well, unfortunately, we are all out of time, but thank you so much for coming in today, Dave. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is Caroline Roberts, and we'll see you here next time for EconQuiz. Hello, and welcome to the Upstream segment of the weekly Radio Free Acton podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and today we're going to talk a little bit about detective fiction and how it is a medium for projecting the moral imagination, and protecting the permanent things. My guest this week is Sally Wright, who is a graduate of Northwestern University, where she earned a degree in oral interpretation of literature and completed graduate work at the University of Washington. And she is the author of the Ben Reese series, as well as the Joe Grant mystery series. How are you doing today? Sally? Very well. Thank you. I'd like to thank you for for joining us. And let's start out a little bit with, uh, there's a long history of detective fiction that is uh, a discussion mostly of uh, the the, the permanent things. Uh, I'm thinking of, uh, of course, G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown series, which uh, I had a, a kindly nun turn me on to when I was in high school. And uh, Dorothy Sayers, Lord Peter Whimsey. Absolutely. When when I began writing, uh, my first novel was pretty much in blank verse in um, first person. And I got rejected a bunch of places. But before that happened, I sent it to Robert Giroux at Farage Strauss and Giroux, great publisher, Catholic, very moral uh, man, one of the really great editors of the of this century, he wrote back and he said, "Sally, there has to be an audience for what you write." <laughs> he said, "You're a writer. I see that for sure. You need to find a medium in which you can talk about what you want to talk about, which, in my case, are the permanent things and the importance of Christianity." in culture and in thinking and in raising families. Uh, And it was like, okay, I've got to do this where there's an audience. Mysteries. And I'd love G.K. Chesterton. I'd love Dorothy L. Sears. And it suddenly came to me that everything you can talk about in the most serious literary tradition you can talk about in a mystery, life, death, Courage, cowardice, um, lack of belief, belief. How, how do all of these things from really, real life affect literature anywhere? It can be done in mysteries. And uh, I took very much my interest and my enjoyment of mysteries and then applied that to what I do. And I was very fortunate to know a college archivist whom I had really spoken to seriously in probably 72 or 3, who had been a behind-the-line scout, a ranger in World War II in Europe, 
who I knew as this Renaissance man who knew everything about ancient texts and rare books and could repair paintings, restore paintings, etc. And I was I was struck when I had my first serious talk with him. This would be a character for a mystery because he was a man of intellect who as a citizen soldier had had to become a man of action to do his duty. And so that gave me a character. So when I went, I need to do what I want to do in mysteries, I had a character that appealed to me and that I could really, I could interview him. He would help me with all of the things I didn't know. So I was I was very fortunate. And that relationship of working with this gentleman over the years was one of the most, I would say, rewarding and inspiring of my life um, because of what an exceptional person he was. And I loved the fact that with an archivist, I could take him uh, to different places. You could be in a small Ohio college town, but you could be in Scotland, you could be in Italy, you could, you know, where he would be doing his archival work. Well, what I like about this as well is that he is immersed in the culture of all of the places that Ben Reese travels to and where he, he works on his mysteries and, and what Absolutely. have you. And um, it reminds me of, of a quote that I have uh, kind of snipped out of a story or a review of your work in uh-huh. the University Bookman by Ashley Coles. And she, uh-huh. she writes that another genre joins fantasy literature in the fight against nihilism, relativism, and the despair that is the result of both the whodunit or detective story set in a universe of order, of heroes and villains, of moral rights and moral wrongs. In other words, a universe worth living in. Absolutely. And, and I mean, there are writers in the genre today who have anti-heroes who, who give the lie to that approach, but um, generally speaking, what she says is absolutely true, and that's one of the reasons people read mysteries, in my opinion, is they like to see justice prevail and some sort of order be imposed on the chaos we all live with. Well, let's steer the conversation a little bit to your Joe Grant mystery series. Tell us a little Ah. bit more about uh, Joe Grant, because those are quite a bit different. Her her background and her her area of specialty is remarkably different from Ben Reese. Right. Um... Those books came out of the fact that I am the daughter of a man who was raised in an orphanage, born in 1911, uh, raised in an orphanage, was the first or second person to ever go to college, um, got there in in September of 1929, um, just had to work his rear end off to be gross, you know, to, to be able... To, to get to college, to stay there, to create a life for himself. And he was helped tremendously by uh, teachers and, and people that he met. And so he started eventually a family business, which is uh, scientific in nature. And so I was raised with that business. I was four. So when I began the Joe Grant books, I knew I wanted to talk about 
the ins and outs, the stresses, the responsibilities, the opportunities, the sadnesses of family business. And there's so many, although many of them, as we all know, are being destroyed today in society in America. Um, I felt like that would be something that a lot of other people could relate to. And so I picked the horse industry of Lexington, Kentucky. I rode horses for years, had my own horses, just, you know, everyday backyard guys. I was never a great rider, but it was a real pleasure for me. And I loved the Lexington area where I went on book tours and began to to meet people there. And so I created a network of three family businesses, uh, a very down-to-earth broodmare care farm, an equine pharmaceutical business, and a horse van manufacturer. So I'm not interested in racing particularly or betting. I mean, I bet $1 in my entire life. (laughs) And you could Um, leave that to Dick Francis anyway. Exactly. Right. (laughs) Who knew a lot more about it than I do. Um, But I really wanted to explore family relationships as they exist and are changed and influenced by family business. And through all that, you know, where, where does Christian morality come in to business? How does it get applied? How does it not get applied? What are the opportunities and the dangers of that whole concept? Well, I, I, I like that. And it, it, it brings me back to the Ashley Cowles essay in University Bookman, where she is writing about uh, one of your uh, Ben Reese mysteries, Out of the Ruins, and he's... Mm-hmm where uh, Ben has to solve a murder linked to a historic family's ownership of Cumberland Island off the coast of Georgia, uh, quote, now threatened by developers and government takeover. This notion of big business and big government as equal threats to authentic culture and human flourishing was one of Russell Kirk's favorite themes, evident in several of the ghostly tales collected in Ancestral Shadows. Indeed. And what, I mean, I create... Uh, a fictitious family that owned Cumberland. And in reality, Thomas Carnegie owned it. Andrew uh, Carnegie's brother? It. Yes. Mm-hmm. Drunken brother, I might point out, a kind of the ne'er-do-well. Um, and there was such a fight in the, I'm going to say, it's been a while since I thought about it, late 70s, early 80s, where the the federal government was trying to take over the entire island. And a developer was, yes, trying to take over the island. And they're fighting each other, and the family's in the middle. And uh, I happened to visit Cumberland at that time when it was very, the accommodation was very rugged, and uh, the very eccentric Carnegie owner still lived there, kind of in a chicken coop, to tell you the truth. Um, And I was just really struck by that as an opportunity to talk about the tyranny that can come from both. And um, I really enjoyed writing that book. The research was super interesting. And um, the the island was owned years earlier by Nathaniel Green's widow, Katie, who actually – made some of the major adjustments to the first cotton gin 
uh, Robert E. Lee's father died there, coming back from the Bahamas. And there's just this rich um, history that I found really compelling. Well, one of the things I, I like about your description of this is that it holds everyone to a moral standard. Not, Absolutely. There, there's, you know, big business is not inherently the only villain. People are also independent actors, can also be villains in, in these stories that, uh, you know, easily can use big business as a, as a scapegoat. And, Absolutely. And, and, and to me, I, I think that it's wonderful that there's actually a writer out there who, uh, I'll, I'll use the Scooby-Doo analogy, where uh, it's always the business people who are trying to make money, and they would have succeeded too if it weren't for those gosh darn kids and the darn dog. But <laughs> So that's, that's, that's what um, I, I like about the descriptions of your stories, and uh, I, I have to confess I've, I've only read synopses of, of them, and uh, now that I have been introduced to them, I'm definitely going to uh, go whole hog and, and read as much of this as I possibly can. So this brings okay. us to the next one. I mean, what are you working on at present? Well, I just handed off to my editor um, a manuscript for the third Joe Grant. And so I'm cleaning my office, to tell you the truth, getting ready to get it back from him because I'll have weeks of you know rewriting to do. And once I finish that... I don't know what I'm going to do. I think I have health issues that make planning for the future a little difficult. If I'm given the time, I think I would like to do one more Ben Reese novel. But I don't know, you know, exactly what that would be and whether I'll have that opportunity. But I hope so. And as do I. I, I think that this is worth the the world really needs the the literary world and, and the pop culture world as well is someone who has a uh, well tuned, well defined moral compass. Well, it was really important to me uh, to get to know Russell Kirk, and I was able to do that. And I spent a lot of time interviewing him, and I wrote um, I wrote an interview which I think has recently gone up on the Kirk. Center uh, website from, I think I did it in 89 when he was in his early 70s, but getting to know him, doing all the reading of his work in order to write about him uh, was very important in my development as a thinker and as a kind of paleo-conservative, um, and it was it was just an honor to be able to talk to him and and learn from his scholarship and his wisdom. Well, that's about all we have time for today. And Sally Wright, I would really, really, really like to thank you for, for being here today to talk about your, your mystery series and uh, your, your life and your background. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. Sally Wright is the Edgar Allan Poe Award finalist. She is the author of the Joe Grant Mystery Series and the Ben Reese Mystery Series. And for Upstream, I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker. We'll speak to you again next week. And that wraps up today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about the Acton Institute, visit our website at acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. 
Also, if you'd like to contact our podcast team or if you have questions for the Acton Institute that you would like to hear answered in future segments of the podcast, you can always leave us a message at 888-705-4180 or email us at rfa at acton.org. This episode was produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore. 